Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And this week, I will be playing the role of Snape, the potions master, as I take you all through a little potions 101 and uh, a pretty fun potion-related QWP. And I'm going to cover the fabulous, the gorgeous, the poisonous foxglove, and of course, the potion queen, the formidable and underworld goddess of inspiration, Caridwen. Love it. Can't wait to hear all about that. I know. Caridwen is a boss babe, man. It'll be a good talk. Oh my gosh. So, but first... We're doing Potions 101, and so if everyone would just please quiet down and get your cauldrons ready, it is time to learn. Uh, So this, I think, falls under the umbrella of Witchy Basics, and honestly, I'm surprised we haven't done like a whole segment on potions already, but here we are doing it, so better late than never, right? Right, Uh, for episode 50... Just yeah, to, like, throw we that were, out there. We were saving it for a special episode, so. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I thought it would be best, Um. and since it's my segment, what I think goes, um, to divide this up into, like, ancient potions and look at some modern takes on potions with a bit of a Wands and Fronds twist, because, you know, we had to do it to them. Uh, so diving in, the word potion is derived from the latin potus which has nothing to do with the american president's twitter handle and actually means to drink and uh duh but that was yeah. a good dad joke i'm proud of you for getting that one in there Th- thank you so much uh, <laughs> and so the original form of potions was just another branch of what we would call like folk medicine so you had your salves, your bombs, and your poultices for external use and potions for internal use. Uh, and that was that's what a potion was. It was anything you took medicinally um, internally. So there we go. OG potions, right? Boom, boom, boom. Hell yeah. You could say that right now I am also consuming a potion because I'm oh. drinking a decoction of OSHA root. And, you know, we are actually going to Gonna touch on that later, so please put a pen in that, people. Um, So, when we look at potions from antiquity that weren't, like, common cold cures and things for, like, boils and rashes, which actually, you know, a lot of the herbs and stuff they used back then are the same herbs we use today with varying degrees of success. Um, And so we're, we're really not looking at that. There were people who made potions that did stuff like that, but I kind of wanted to look at like some of the famous ones um, that really come up like time and time again in like folklore and stuff. So the top spot, of course, goes to the Elixir of Life, which was the top thing sought after by alchemists, apart from the whole like lead into gold thing. Uh, and since we live in the future, we know how all that turned out. So we don't really need to dwell on the fact that they never did it. Just that they were trying to make potions to make people immortal. And all of that work did not come cheaply. So alchemical concoctions were primarily consumed by the 
noble and royal classes because they were the only ones that could afford these services of an alchemist. Makes sense, right? Um, so part of this class divide, though, is evidence in some of the formulations for like alchemist brews and life elixirs dating back to the Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages that followed it. Um, so this one, I think, is, is just a little wacky. So things like powdered pearls and uh, powdered lapis lazuli found their way into these potions. And while that seems very glamorous to be drinking what is basically powdered jewelry, uh, we know now that that could not have been good for you and almost certainly never caused anyone to become immortal. <laughs> it's no gold schlager, y'all. Which, uh, you know, I mean, just thinking about that makes me sick, too. So Right? Ugh. That's not going to make you immortal either, by the way. Uh, Hot tip from Wands and Frogs. <laughs> Goldschlager will not give you everlasting life. News at 11. Uh, news at 11. Uh, but so there was also a lot of use of other dyes. I mean, Lapis Lazuli was like the blue dye for a very long time, uh, which is actually the, the, the Sacre Bleu um, they would make from that, I believe. Which yeah, is, and Cleopatra used Lapis... Uh, Lapis lazuli in her um, eyeshadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's expensive. Yeah. And so it yeah, was like... It's glamorous. It's like a sign of respect to the Holy Mother to paint her veil blue because it's an expensive dye. So if we're kind of thinking about that, they would use other dyes, like purple dyes and red dyes. So pigments were a, a very real luxury in those days. And there was a growing study at the time of the sort of purported magical effects of certain colors. And while not to discredit that from a more modern perspective, that does seem a little gimmicky, kind of like putting flakes of gold in Goldschlager. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think here it's like, it's so worth pointing out that it's like, there are shysters always. Cause it's like, there were plenty of alchemists doing like real work with herbalism and like, trying to do like the real shit but then for every one of those it's like you have some dude that's like no rich person but like if you keep giving me money eventually i'll be able to turn this lead into gold it's like there's always going to be some human that's going to take something cool and be like okay but how can i make a shit ton of money off of this or they're or they're like this drink is blue so you know that's magic right right they're just like medieval snake oil salesmen which speaking of which there was something that shows up in some of those formulas that does have actual pharmacological effects. Uh, now, this is where we're introduced to the first of three potion ingredients from antiquity that I wanted to look at a bit closer. And this is one that showed up in uh, quite a few elixirs of life, Spanish fly. Um, and so this is where I personally had a bit of a head explodey moment because if I'm being 100% honest with you guys, and I always am, I had only ever heard about Spanish fly in passing before doing the research for this episode, and I was vaguely aware of its status as, uh, as an aphrodisiac. Um, but I assumed incorrectly that it must be some kind of herb or flower or root and, you know, not an actual fly. Uh, and technically... It's not really a fly in the scientific sense. It is a flying 
iridescent emerald green beetle native to the Mediterranean regions. But yes. I mean, I feel like that assumption that it was an herb or a flower was really your subconscious trying to protect you from how gross that is. I mean, it's... It's uh, it, beetle juice. It's beetle juice. <laughs> um, but no, so even today, you can buy this uh, through some shady channels. And actually, I kind of thought it was very similar, not only in like the effects of the small doses, but just kind of the fact that you buy it through like a weird, almost black market process. Uh, it's like very similar to poppers or AKA amyl nitrates, um, which are very, oh, pop- yeah. you know, yeah. very, very popular in the, uh, the gay community to this day. Um, but so, so in smaller doses, you get kind of like a head rushy, horny feeling and like these warm flashes of euphoria. Uh, but the poison and it is a poison y'all that the Beatles produce varies pretty wildly between the genders, so between male and female insects of, of this species, and even between individuals and between different times of the year. Um, so if you can take all of that into factor, um, it's really hard to give someone like an exact dose of Spanish fly. Um, and so a lot of people died using it. Um, and actually, here's, here's a fun little side fact about Spanish fly. Um, as recently as the 1970s, uh, people have been put on trial for manslaughter for non-consensually dosing things with Spanish fly powders and accidentally killing guests at an orgy. What oh my a- god. <laughs> What a, that's insane oh i mean like what what a 70s headline though you know right um, i have to say like a little preview for later i am also talking about murder we did not plan that y'all love it uh and it was accidental murder but you still shouldn't be giving people things uh that they did not consent to taking um yeah, it's like, okay, Caitlyn Jenner, you accidentally hit them with your car. They're still dead. They're still <laughs> dead. Um, but so back to the main storyline here. So they would put Spanish fly in some of the elixirs of life because I guess horny people feel immortal. Or maybe it's like because you don't feel as old if you're like, oh, I'm horny like a young person. So it must be working. Right. I mean, I think it's like nothing says life like horniness. Right. So it does make a certain kind of sense. And I mean, if you're the shyster alchemist, you know, trying to hold on to your salary from the king, you you, you at least want to make him happy enough to not notice that you're not really doing much of your job. Um, so, you know, I, I think it makes more sense to give the king Spanish fly and make him horny than uh, give him pearls and lapis lazuli. Uh, I mean, I feel like if you cure the king's ED, he's going to, like, maybe give you a lot of leeway on how long it's taking you to turn that lead into gold. Right, right, right. So, (laughs) um, which brings us to another popular medieval potion ingredient, which was very witchy up until the present day honestly, and has a very 
interesting documented history as an ingredient in flying ointments, henbane. So I did pick henbane for this because it really has like ancient roots. Um, so for those of you that don't know, henbane is a member of the nightshade family, just like our next herb that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, and when taken in small enough doses, it's like a delirium hallucinogen that can generate euphoric feelings of flying and leaving your body. And apart from its noted use in flying ointments, henbane seeds have been found in Viking burials that predate the Middle Ages. And a popular theory is that the intoxicating effects may have been used to help Viking warriors achieve that like berserker state that terrified people all over Europe when they were getting invaded by the Vikings. You know, you'd have these dudes that literally would fight till they died. And um, just, you know, it's like no thoughts, just fighting, uh, which is scary. And the, <laughs> the, way, the way that they would do that would be through some kind of potion. And they think henbane really makes a lot of sense since they find it in Viking burials uh, to kind of facilitate that. Um, I also wanted to plug that we talked about flying ointments in our fourth episode of this podcast, if you want to go back and listen to it. Oh, yeah. Um, We sure did, which is why I was like, oh, flying ointments, duh. Um, But so a lot like Spanish fly, you guys, in the wrong doses or with the wrong people, the poisonous aspects of this plant really come out. And there's a reason we talk about deadly nightshades. Uh, You could literally die. And while henbane isn't like the deadly nightshade, it can be extremely toxic. Um, And actually, a lot of the stuff that they were using it for that did have more valid medicinal uses was like topical. Because it was apparently good for like numbing your joints and like aches and pains as like a topical treatment um, or like a wound, you know, like a like something to take away the pain of wounds, um, which is backed up by by science, um, but not drinking it as a potion, um, because that's where you get into the. It's kind of hard to get the dosage from a raw plant. Um, you know, if you were extracting the active alkaloids and dosing them out, then then sure. But they were not really doing the uh, the the most accurate dosing in the dark ages. So <laughs> yeah, um, and it's hard. I think it's worth noting because, like we we've said it before, toxicities in the dosage. But that's also why with like plants, you have to be so careful because plants are like people, right? So like everyone is going to have slightly different concentrations of different like things. Like not every single plant is identical, which is why with herbalism too, it's like sometimes dosage can be like kind of tricky and you have to like work to get it just right. But that's why when you get into things that can become toxic, it's like, way 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 important that you have to work with someone that like knows what they're doing and like work with your doctor because plants yeah it's like you never know from plant to plant things could be slightly different and you could straight up fucking die from some of these things right so 
Hey, that brings us to another favorite of Dark Age, which is the third of our three ancient potion ingredients, Mandrake. So Mandrake was very common in potions of the time. Uh, And the Mandrake is the root of another nightshade. So the Solanaceae family has a lot of poisonous shit going on. Um, But unlike the Hinbane, the power of mandrakes is in the roots. And they believe that like the dark forces of the underworld are what gave the mandrake its power uh, and also provided the curse. And you had to handle it extremely carefully. Um, So it was believed by Dark Age potion makers that the mandrake had to be pulled under moonlight so you cannot do it during the day uh, and you would have to spend lots of time praying over it and preparing the area Uh, you couldn't just go do it and then lastly you could not pull up a mandrake with your own hands Um, so they had devised a way because they believed that if you pulled up a mandrake yourself it would shriek and that would either cause you to go mad which is not fun um or die you would basically just drop dead where you stood uh and that's that's not fun for anyone either uh so they would tie a cord around the where the plant meets the root and then have a dog pull it out and usually it was a black dog but as long as it's not a person uh the curse does not come into effect so you would have a dog pull it out um and after all the fuss then you can use it for beneficent purposes so the main ones uh would of course been for potions sleeping drafts which actually does make a lot of sense because in the therapeutic doses the alkaloids found in mandrake roots actually can cause unconsciousness so it makes a lot of sense that people would turn to this kind of thing uh, if they were experiencing experiencing run-of-the-mill insomnia, but these were actually so effective in high doses that mandrakes were commonly used for anesthetics during what passed for surgeries in the Dark Ages. And I don't even want to think about think about that. Uh, you know, getting your leg hacked off uh, or getting a tooth pulled back then. Um, anywho, very cool, very fun, but. Like the other two sort of antiquity potions ingredients in anything higher than what we would call a therapeutic dose, which, again, they obviously were not using exact measurements during the Dark Ages, also a very toxic plant to humans. Um, And so if you're kind of sensing a theme here, then good for you, because to be frank, Europe is not a great place to look for quality uses of herbs and natural ingredients. And while we at Wands and Fronds love the traditional folk magics of Europe and recognize that this is our cultural heritage as Caucasian witches, there were better and honestly more scientific systems of herbalism in the Middle and Far East, um, predating and at the same time as the Dark Ages were going on in Europe. Uh, but before we take a brief look at that, I wanted to close out on like a slightly more positive note about historical European potion making 
So the facts do tell us that after the Dark Ages, it was pretty standard all over Europe to go to an apothecary for medicinal herbs and formulas that would have basically been the pharmacist of the time. So they didn't completely fudge it up. And while here is a fun fact, apothecaries, like like your standard run-of-the-mill, you know, medieval Walgreens, right, are actually the reason that there's not that many mummies left from the original Egyptian tombs. Did you know about this, Shannon? I did not know about this. So, and this is uh, apparently out of France. So it during and after the Renaissance, um, after Europeans had sort of dis- like rediscovered Egypt and Mesopotamian culture, um, they thought that using mummy dust in potions for vitality was like it. Um, and it was so popular that literally they think there's only a very small percentage of how many, I mean, because think about it, mummies are perfectly preserved for thousands of years. So why aren't there just a shit ton of them? Now we know. Um, and so it's, that's some, that's just so fucked up. It really is. <laughs> um, but a lot of it that you would go to the apothecary for was like relatively sound herbal remedies that we might still use today. Um, they just weren't as keenly aware of a, why these things worked, or otherwise formulated it with other ingredients that either did nothing, like mummy dust. Uh, which, by the way, mummy dust does nothing. Um, and probably... No, it's just powdered dead people. <laughs> uh, and other things, you know, they would do herbal formulations that were just irritating or slightly poisonous. I mean... You know, these are the people who put mercury and lead in their makeup. Like, you know, it's uh, not not the brightest people in the world at the time. I'm like, if you want to guarantee that all of your organs are haunted, (laughs) mummy dust is the way to go. I mean, if that's your goal. But I'm just I'm just over here, like everything else aside, like it's it's powdered dead people. Let's put that aside for a second. It's, uh, honestly, it's grave robbing, uh, which is is a great way to get cursed, uh, especially in Egypt, where they literally put curses on all their tombs. Uh, let's, let's, let's not even look at that. That shit has to taste terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that there's no, like, mummy-flavored protein powders nowadays. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that, too. It's like, uh... I, mummy dust. I who knew? Um, but they were not completely fucking things up. We're just we're just not looking at at sort of the positive aspects because honestly, it's like they were de- like the the way they were doing it properly was for smaller things like colds and coughs and boils and rashes and the stuff you would go to your local village healer woman for. Um, and that stuff's not nearly as fun to talk about as mummy dust. It's really not. Um, but so another thing that came up, speaking of your, your local healer woman, uh, a lot of the accused witches from the various witch trials, uh, both in Europe and the new world were local healer women who provided abortifacients to women. And honestly, 
as if we didn't need another reason to say fuck the patriarchy, but fuck the goddamn patriarchy. Like, you know, even it's like, it's funny that we're still having this conversation hundreds of years later about whether or not that's okay. Um, (laughs) Right. So the last tidbit that I thought was interesting about like European style potions in antiquity was that it was very common for prostitutes to be the ones to make and prescribe certain potions, especially where the health issues overlapped with their profession. So, I mean, sex workers have been doing like the actual fucking work since the beginning of time. Very true. Uh, So meanwhile, in China, they kept what can only be described as near scientific records of their folk remedies and regular came out with regularly came out with new versions of what we might call like an herbal formulary to sort out the way that things would like cross affect each other boost each other block each other and like additives for certain side effects uh so like the first restaurants in the world which i've actually talked about this in a previous episode the very first restaurants in the world that we would recognize as a restaurant um, where you would sit down, order from a menu, and have your food brought to you uh, come from China and Chinese medicine. And, you know, it's like they would balance out the energies in these recipes in the traditional Chinese medicinal way. Um, But I, you know, it's... I. Now that we look at Chinese medicine through the lens of the modern scientific method, we do find things where it's like that doesn't really do anything. Like shark fins, you know, like they they really believe in Chinese medicine in like the restorative powers of shark fins, which do have a lot of collagen in them, but not a statistically higher dose than, say, like bone broth. So, you know, if you're trying to ingest more collagen for better skin uh, and youth and vitality and all that, you know, you you could just drink bone broth instead of buying a shark fin. And the shark fin industry is so big that it has caused certain species of shark to go completely extinct. And never mind the fact that they just throw the rest of the shark back into the ocean after they cut the fin off, which is a complete fucking waste anyway. Um, But that's... That's so rabbit holy, and I'm not even going to talk about it because it's like a lot of the stuff in Chinese medicine is coming to light as not only effective, but they're able to formulate actual medicines from a lot of these like mushrooms and roots and berries and stuff like ginkgo. You you remember back in the 90s when there was like ginkgo fever and they were like, it's really it's good for people with Alzheimer's because it improves, you know, the brain function of Alzheimer's patients. Well, yeah. Ginkgo is a Chinese medicinal ingredient that was seen as woo-woo bullshit until someone actually did a scientific study of it. Um, So I want all of you guys, though, to like put an idea, uh, put a pin into the idea of like an herbal formulary for a minute when we take a little side path. And I'm taking a little side path path here to make a point before sort of looking at a more modern way to look at potions. so I would imagine that most people listening to this have some idea of what ayahuasca is. Uh, but if not, then very quickly, it is a very hallucinogenic brew made from plants that come from the jungles of South America. 
that contains lots of bioavailable DMT, uh, which basically means your body can absorb it and you can get high off of it. Um, and basically, you go on like a spiritual journey for like 12 hours or more, uh, all while puking your guts up, um, which is supposedly a very beautiful and intense experience. And as we have said in other episodes, please don't do ayahuasca with white people who have dreadlocks. Um, if you really have to do it, and I would say you probably don't, um, if you have to be asking yourself, should I be doing this? The, the answer might be no. Um, but if you have to do it, like a white guy with dreads who listens to a bunch of fish records isn't a shaman, you know? So. <laughs> Snaps. Like, just because that's what it says on his LinkedIn, um, that, that doesn't mean anything. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to imagine the LinkedIn profile of white guy with dreads shaman. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's out there. Um, but is that enough? I don't know. But it's like, I'm somewhat skeptical as a person. So it's like, I like to know that we're like on the edge of science backing these things up too. Like, especially with herbalism and things like this, where it's like, we're gonna get there. And then we will get to say, I told you so, which nothing gives a Virgo more pleasure. I mean, I think with herbalism, too, it's like you have to remember that m almost every modern pharmaceutical is like pulled from plants or, you know, the like constituents in plants. So it's like, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has a lot of vested interest in making sure that like herbalism doesn't take off, not to be like all conspiratorial, but like, you know, in capitalist America, qui bono. You know, I think that it's very reasonable to expect that no time soon will there be a lot of funding into the efficacy of herbalism, unfortunately. Right. But kind of back to the main point, I think as modern witches, I do think it's a good idea to look at herbal formularies uh, for some inspiration for your own like herbal grimoire. And I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably something you're doing like not setting it up as an herbal formulary but you probably have an herbal grimoire or a book of shadows that maybe you've written about herbs in and just for the for the sake of like virgo organization you know uh because we do have a lot of virgo energy on this show like the thing i liked about it as as sort of a concept for your herbal grimoire is that you could list the magical connotations of herbs that you want to use as well as the medicinal connotations as well as the things that are going to boost or block or you know whatever so that way you have you you don't have to keep cross-referencing individual herbs like the ideas for different formulas are already there yeah, I think that it's um so this is the way my materia medica is sort of set up. I mean, I don't necessarily have on the individual pages a bunch of formulations all the time unless it's things I'm familiar with, but that is how my materia medica is set up. It actually includes both what we consider like the mundane, like the body systems that it works on and like, you know, any sort of like chemical constituents that we're aware of, but I also include things like astrological associations like magical associations because in particular with things like astrology and planetary um correspondences there are like 
herbalism topics that are like kind of more specific to that and looking at like the balance of mercury in the body or whatever. But all of that to say, I think that this is a great sort of structure for using when you're thinking about like writing about plants. And as part of the Patreon, we've been kind of teasing one of the levels might involve getting a page out of my Materia Medica every month that includes things like the way it works herbally, as well as the magical properties as well. So stay tuned. There are goodies to come. <laughs> there there are goodies to come. And, uh, you know, just to kind of like round out this segment too, I did want to say like, as modern witches, you know, like we don't, we, like, like we are sort of less called upon than we would have been in the past because people can just go to Walgreens and get Dayquil and NyQuil. Um, so we're, we're sort of less called upon to do those kinds of services. And, you know, maybe like potion making really is kind of fading out of popularity. I, you know, it's like I was doing the research for this segment and I see a lot of like bullshit love. Po- I'm sorry, y'all. Bullshit love potions on Pinterest. Ain't it? You know. Oh, my God. No. Um, but what I do think is it, though. It's like when you're making tea and when you're like making herbal stuff for yourself especially if that's something that you regularly do as a ritual that is that that is a lot like potion making and i feel like as a kitchen witch especially it's it's one of those things you can feel it you know it's like when you're making loose leaf tea and you can smell the flowers in there and you can like add your own stuff and you're like oh i'm not feeling I'm feeling a little dehydrated. Let me throw a little hibiscus in there. Like that, that is modern potion making, hun. Like, so, you know, I think the kitchen witches are like the people that are going to carry potion making forward into the future. Because like I said, you know, it's like we are called upon less to like heal the people around us than we used to be. And obviously in your own inner circle, in your family, you're probably doing a lot of that kind of thing. But, you know, it's like in the world at large, people aren't coming to their neighborhood witches being like, oh, I have a cold. Can you make me a potion? So um, I think really anything that has that spirit, and you know, uh, me personally, I'm like a moon water and sun tea guy. Like that's really as deep into actual potion making as I get. And I love it. And that's a regular part of my practice. But for me, like the the you know, the act of making like loose leaf tea has that same energy. For sure. I mean, for me, it's like every day I make an infusion that includes nettles, dandelion leaf, sometimes oat straw. Um, But like I've been feeling a little under the weather. So, you know, I added some elderberries to mine today, as well as some like white chrysanthemum because it's good for headaches. And if you are into making infusions, I would definitely recommend looking into Bombilla straws. It's B-O-M-B-I-L-L-A. And they're basically straws with like strainers on the end. Oh, for yerba mate. Yeah, yeah. They they are originally for yerba mate, but you can buy them at most good herbal stores now in stainless steel as well. So they are a little bit longer lasting. And they're great for like daily herbal infusions if you're someone that's into that. And keeps it out of your teeth. Yep, exactly. Because some stuff like 
you know, is really easy. But then there's other things like, you know, small dandelion leaf that will definitely get all up in your business. You know, it's like the nettles get big and they sink to the bottom, but the dandelion leaf is going to give you a gritty mouthful if you're not using a straw. Um, so yeah, I think making infusions, making teas, like I said earlier, right now I'm, I'm getting like a bit of a cold. So I made a decoction of some OSHA root and it's like, that's super fucking magical stuff. It, and you know, it's funny because I was reading about OSHA, OSHA root, um, as just like sort of an introduction to herbal formularies. And they were using that as like one of the examples of like, if you, if you did if you were taking that to like cleanse out your system then it would be good they were like it would be good to take it with something spicy to really potentiate the effects because spicy stops your liver from overly attacking foreign substances yeah there's lots of um lots of good Lots of good different advice. I mean, I've got a few great books. Matthew Wood is a great resource. Sage Popham is another great resource if you're into like thinking about how to formulate different herbal stuff. I should also say for OSHA root, it's very, very important that you make sure that it's sourced ethically because it is on the United States like list of endangered plants. So you don't want to buy wild harvested OSHA. There is OSHA here on the West Coast that is not as over harvested as the OSHA that is in the Appalachian area. Um, just for, you know, being responsible people, I wanted to make sure to mention that since we're talking about OSHA. And speaking of being responsible, I think that brings us to QWP time. And this week, we've done this before. I feel like we do this as QWP every time we kind of brush with the poison path, but uh don't fuck with poisons unsupervised. Um, it might seem cool, especially during spooky season. But uh, yeah, don't don't kill someone. Uh, don't kill yourself by accident. Um, don't go I, on I, a murderous rampage with poisons, which I'll talk on, about soon. <laughs> don't go on a murderous rampage with poisons. But really, it's like you know, don't fuck. It's like don't fuck with poisons. Um, and I. But, like, as an addendum to that, it's, like, a lot of these things are okay in a clearly defined therapeutic dose, but you don't just want to go out and pick a mandrake and try to, like, make a potion out of it. Because, you know, you might not die, but you could end up throwing up and having diarrhea for, like, several days, which could kill you. You know, it's not yeah. the man, it's not the mandrake that kills you. It's the dehydration from all the diarrhea. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a perfect transition into talking about foxglove because we'll talk a bit about like toxicity and the dosage with this one. Um, so digitalis purpurea or foxglove. I think that this is like one of the most striking plants. You know, I think it's just gorgeous. They can get up to six feet tall. They have clusters of like tubular flowers that look like bells and like white, lavender, yellow, pink, red, purple. Like they've got such like cottage core vibes and they're a perfect choice to add some like height variation in your garden design. And this plant also has some really baller synonyms, like common names, including just some of my favorite uh, witches' gloves, dead men's bells, fairies' glove, gloves of Our Lady, bloody fingers, fairy caps, and fairy thimbles. 
So cute. Um, so the name foxglove probably comes from the Anglo-Saxon word um, fox's glue, which means fox music. And that's because the bell-like flowers actually kind of look like this old, ancient, like musical instrument that was essentially bells hung from like an arched support. And foxglove is going to be hardy in zones four to 10. But just remember, if you're in an area that gets hotter, they're going to need more like midday and afternoon shade to keep them from totally like baking and crisping up. Uh, Foxgloves, like almost every plant in the entire world, uh, enjoys like well-draining soil, doesn't like to keep its feet wet. They also appreciate like a rich soil. So you can incorporate some compost to like really keep them thriving and these are plants that don't want to completely dry out. So you need to like keep the soil moist, but don't let it get too soggy or dry out completely. Like it's kind of one of those Goldilocks situations, but like just keep it moist and it'll be happy. It is a biennial or a short-lived perennial. And keeping it in that like just right soil moisture will encourage the regrowth of the flowers. And you can grow them from seed, but just keep in mind when I say they're biennial, it means that the plant will produce flowers in the second year. So if you're growing from seed, just know that it's going to be a minute before you get to see flowers. And once you do have those gorgeous flowers, if you don't remove the flower heads, they are going to reseed quite intensely. So keep that in mind if you're someone who likes order in your garden, you know, maybe cut them, put them in bouquets, things like that, uh, because they will take over. You do have to also remember that all parts of the plant can be toxic when consumed. So keep your children away if they like to snack on your garden friends. But the good news there is that it means that deer and rabbits tend to leave them alone, even though hummingbirds still do love the nectar. Um, also, I need to like really reiterate here, like please be safe when foraging because people have been known to mistake foxglove for comfrey because they do look very similar. The biggest difference is that like, Foxglove has bigger flowers, but if you don't have foxglove and comfrey next to each other, that's not always super easy to distinguish. So, oh, right. It's doubt. like, it's like <laughs> oh, yeah, they have bigger flowers. Well, unless they're planted right next to each other. Right. It's like, there's nothing to compare it to. So, yeah, when in doubt, guys, don't fucking eat it. Um, for the longest time, though, like back to the 1700s, like, People have been using foxglove to treat a variety of disorders, right? I'm like, some of you are probably thinking, how on earth am I going to fucking talk about herbalism with this one when I just keep telling you it's poisonous? And, you know, back in the 1700s, they were using it to treat a lot of things, including like tuberculosis. But the most popular thing that they used uh, foxglove to treat was what they called dropsy, which is edema, you know, it's just like fluid retention. But in the 20th century, practitioners found a link between foxglove and congestive heart failure. And now foxglove is actually grown commercially for the distillation of the heart medication digitalis. Um, and that's because foxglove contains the cardiac glycosides, digitoxic and digioxin. And the plant's glycosides actually increase the force of heart contractions, which leads to more efficient movement of blood through the heart, giving the heart more resting time between contractions. And these same glycosides can also correct abnormal rhythms, including things like atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. And they act as a diuretic as well. But that effect is actually a result of like the improved circulation as opposed to a direct impact on the kidneys. So I'm going to like piggyback on Nick with this mini QWP. You have to keep in mind, again, like 
there is a very narrow window of dosage for something like foxglove to produce the desired outcomes and not fucking kill you. Like, between 1993 and 1995, four previously healthy men, including a 23-year-old and a 26-year-old, died after taking an aphrodisiac that left abnormally high amounts of digoxin in their blood. So... Again, like we cannot state this enough, toxicity is determined by dosage. And with something like foxglove and digitalis, if you're working with a doctor, overdose is rare. But again, I just want to like really emphasize how important it is to be safe with these types of plants. And I've seen more and more places like popping up selling tinctures and essences of poisonous plants. I'm not inherently opposed to this, but I do want to emphasize how important it is for you to be safe and smart. Like, please don't buy random poisonous flower essences off of Craigslist. Like, just you need to be so careful with this stuff. Like, I'm we're not being dramatic when we say you can literally die. Be safe. But for a fun, well, maybe not fun story, uh, I want to talk about murder again from herbologymanchester.wordpress.com. So, chillingly, the availability of the drug and the subtleness of the symptoms makes digitalis or digitoxin-containing plants a choice drug for an unforgivable but rare crime, the murder of patients by healthcare workers. The person believed to be the most prolific serial killer in American history is the nurse, Charles Cullen, who is suspected to have killed several hundred patients using very high doses of digoxin and insulin. Spooky. Right? Anyway, murder. (laughs) So, magic time. Okay, I'm going to say it again, guys. This is not a plant to play with lightly, so proceed with extreme caution if you want to use it in your magical practice, okay? Foxglove is associated with the planet Venus, the water element, the zodiac sign Taurus, and the fox. Foxglove is a great plant to incorporate into underworld witchcraft um, because it's it's believed to banish the profane while keeping the secrets of its allies. And I actually have a little uh, spell to share later on to have uh, Foxglove be an ally in keeping your secrets. Ooh. Foxglove is a hermaphroditic botanical because it compl- uh, contains both male and female organs. And because of that, I think it can be an excellent healer for people who experience this like lifetime outside of the traditional gender binary. So keep that in mind. And Cindy Brandon wrote in Entering Hecate's Garden that she actually grows foxglove to the left of her front door to represent the left-handed poison path, which I think is just like wah, beautifully poetic. Foxglove is, as you may have guessed, based on its common names, associated with the fair folk who are said to be attracted to the plant, which they will like gather around them and wear the blossoms and share them with the foxes. So if you're someone who works with the Fae, you could actually leave offerings for them under the leaves of the foxglove. So, you know, if you have a fairy garden, foxglove would be right at home for little fairy thimbles. Um, This plant is also a good mood booster. So if you're like feeling low, you know, maybe go spend some time in your garden around the foxglove but it can actually amplify an anxious state. So be mindful of it if you are an anxious witch like myself. And when you're thinking about like the connection between herbalism and magic, to me, this just makes so much sense when you think about the way that the constituents in it work on the heart, making the heartbeat more forceful. So, you know, really like invigorating and, you know, helping improve vitality. I think to me, that's where that connection makes the most sense. 
Um, and Foxglove is also said to be a portal to Kairos, the nonlinear time of the etheric world. So it's useful for time travel witchcraft, which includes things like healing ancestral lines or recovering missing pieces of ourselves. So for most people, myself included, uh, the best way to work with Foxglove is to simply grow it and perform spells in its presence when you're calling on the plant's energies. You can also like glove up and use some of the Foxglove leaves to make a small basem bound with like black cord. You can use it for spiritual cleansing and add charms and symbols. It's been suggested to use 13 leaves from the foxglove to create this basem. And in Cindy Brandon's book, she does have a spell, like I mentioned, suggesting um, using foxglove seeds that I thought was really cool. So this is a spell to ensure that your secrets aren't revealed and you can actually continue to add secrets to the spell after it's been cast. So you're gonna start with a black glove and you stuff a seed into each of the fingers while reciting Ferris Foxglove, heed my request. Keep my secrets in your grasp. With your powers contained inside, my secrets within this glove abide. You're going to write your secrets on a slip of paper with a black pen and stuff it inside the glove while you keep reciting the incantation. Then tie up the glove with a black cord and stick it in a jar that you can put a lid on. Store it in a cool, dark place, and you can add secrets as you wish, always reciting the incantation. So... My sources today were Entering Hecate's Garden by Cindy Brannon, GardeningKnowHow.com, and MotherEarthLiving.com. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I, you know I love that spell because I'm like, let's write it down, people. Right, write it down. I also just love the idea of like working with a plant to be a secret keeper. Something about that to me is just so attractive. I don't know. I... I was really, really stoked when I heard about that. <laughs> um, but we're getting close to the end. So now we're on to the deity profile, guys. And again, we're talking about potions. So we had to discuss the keeper of the cauldron, Caridwen. So Caridwen is a powerful underworld goddess in Welsh legend. And she is the keeper of the cauldron of knowledge, inspiration, and rebirth. So, you know kind of a fucking big deal she's also she also represents the crone in the triple goddess deity you know sort of vision of the mother maiden crone she's a crone character so caridwen she had two children a daughter who was beautiful and full of life and a son who was named afadu or Morfran, who was ugly and malevolent. And so the two sort of represent like the light and the dark side of the universe. And since her son was like ugly and not very charming, she wanted to help him. But even though she's a goddess, she's like, look, I can't fucking make you pretty, but I can brew a potion that's going to make you brilliant and powerful and wise. So the potion had to be brewed for a year and a day. Is any Wiccans in the house? Um, <laughs> so they also note in the story that like as it's being brewed for a year and a day, um, she went about and like collected herbs that had to be added at appropriate astrological times, which is just like wonderful. And there's so much astrology in herbal alchemy, which I think is just a fascinating rabbit hole to get into at some point if you guys are ever looking for a way to completely lose an afternoon. Um, but once the potion was ready, exactly three drops needed to be given to her son, and the rest of the potion would then transform into a poison that would crack and destroy the cauldron. 
So to keep the potion being mixed and tended, Caridwen had her servant, uh, Gwienbach, uh, stirring the potion while it was brewing because she's a busy lady. She's a fucking goddess and she would need to sleep from time to time. She literally couldn't babysit it 24-7. So Gwienbach comes in and helps some. And on the last day, as the potion finally reached completion, and of course Caridwen was asleep, Three drops splashed out of the cauldron, and Guyambach jumped in front of more friends. So he became the worldly and brilliant one. And as this happens, the cauldron is destroyed by the remaining potion. And so I've read a few sources that say it's kind of like an accident that Guyambach consumes it. But I recently acquired like a translation of the Mabinagion. And in that, it basically says that Guyambach intentionally did this. I feel like that seems more true based on what now happens. So Gwambach, knowing that he had done fucked up, used his new magical skills to transform into a rabbit to run away from Caridwen. And this is where we get into like a cartoon worthy, like Looney Tunes style chase scene. So Caridwen then changed into a greyhound to chase after the Gwianbach rabbit, and she took off after him. And then he becomes a fish and jumps into a river, so she transforms into an otter. He turns into a bird to fly away, and she becomes a hawk. And finally, he's like, fuck. He turns into a single grain of corn and tries to hide himself in a pile of grain. Caridwen would not lose, so she transformed into a hen, and, you know, still being a fucking goddess, was able to find Gwianbach, like, the corn kernel, immediately and eat him. So through some magic, you know, some woo-woo, magic wag, magic-y, wagic-y shit, Guyambach was transferred from her stomach into her womb, where he gestated for nine months. Uh, Caridwen knew she was pregnant with Guyan and planned to kill the child when it was born. But when he was finally born, he was so beautiful and she couldn't bring herself to just bash his head in. So instead, she sewed him into a leather bag and tossed him into the ocean. <laughs> the kid was eventually discovered and rescued by Prince Elfin and his wife, who had no kids of their own, and they chose to adopt him, and they named him Taliesin, and he grew up to become the greatest Welsh poet ever. So that is uh, one of the most famous stories of Caridwen. It's from the Mabinogion, and it actually like leads right up into Arthurian legend, because um, Taliesin is like in the Arthurian tales. Anyway, um, so Caridwen is a badass and you can work with her in so many different ways. Um, of course, her cauldron is like the source of inspiration and like divine knowledge and creativity. So you can call on her for work regarding like inspiration. And like, if you are a creative or you're someone who does like writing or music, you know, you can always call on Caridwen for that. Um, she's also a great goddess when you know in your gut that something needs to change and you're ready to examine like what's no longer serving you. Like she's a great deity to sort of help you figure out what needs to die so that something better can be born. So I think this is also just like such a good time of year for thinking about working with Caridwen. And as like a powerful underworld goddess, speaking of this time of year and like Samhain coming up, you can call on her for underworld magic assistance. So like maybe if you want to like work with and, you know, get support from your deceased ancestors, Caridwen could be a powerful ally in that. Um, the cauldron symbolizes the transformative power of magic. So I also think she's just an excellent like patron deity. If that's something that you're interested in finding and like you know, leaning into. And in some stories, she transforms into a white sow to address her followers. So, you know, perhaps like a really cute little white pig statue or artwork could be a good way to represent her on your altar. Or if you're into otters, you know, otter imagery 
for a representation. Uh, she is also said to appreciate offerings of corn. So, you know, this is a great time of year for like those really cute, like decorative corn cobs, you know, that could also be an offering to Caridwen. So my sources today were thegoddessgarden.com and my translation of the Mabinagian. Wow. And, you know, uh, speaking of her appearing as a white sow, one thing that I forgot to mention in my little talk about Dark Age potion ingredients was that apparently pigs are immune to the poisons in Henbane, and they eat it to get high. And I, wow. I, I did forget to mention that. But as someone who likes to get high myself, um, I thought that was a fun, fun little tidbit. <laughs> I love that. I think that's great. Well, I guess that brings us to taroscope time. It, it so, does indeed, Nick. So you guys, <laughs> this week I got the sign of cancer to do the taroscope for. And for you guys this week, I have drawn the reversed Seven of Cups. So for everyone out there that's maybe not so familiar with the imagery of the tarot uh, and can't really recall the Seven of Cups off the top of their head, um, the Seven of Cups is sort of, you know, it's like the guy looking out and all seven cups are in front of him and they have all this, each cup has like, something really cool in it. Like one of them has a castle and one of them has, you know, it's like all these very nice things. Right. And it's like coming to him. It's like floating in front of him in a cloud as if it's like a beautiful vision in a dream. Right. So, but this is the reverse seven of cups. So whereas upright, it's like you're, you're caught up in the fantasy and you, you are caught up in, Oh, I have all these options. I could do anything. And it's like, it's very positive and very dreamy and, and, and very visionary. Uh, the reverse version is kind of the reality check that comes with that. So you guys do have the options. But what this card is telling me is that you guys need to have this moment of clarity and make a fucking decision already. Uh, because you can't live in this, this dream world where you have all of the options, you do eventually have to pick something. And so you have all of the seven cups lined up in front of you with all of your different options. Um, and you can't live in this realm of not choosing. So it kind of indicates to me that you guys are kind of stuck. And again, you know, it seems like it's all good options, but you, you do have to make a decision. Uh, and I know, personally, I'm a very indecisive person. Uh, it can be hard to decide between two good things or, you know, it's kind of like Shannon was saying with Caridwen, where it's like some things have to die so that other things can live. And that's really kind of a similar message to what we're getting here with this reverse seven of cups for you guys is that you have to pick something or it's all going to go away. So if that resonates for you guys, my advice to you make a fucking decision okay it's time pull your head out of your ass um and that's all i have to say about that you know a I little like that tough love <laughs> <laughs> pull your head out of your ass signed nick <laughs> a plus plus uh i mean you know you, you can't sugarcoat everything and that's kind of the the approach i've been taking lately uh, not that I'm feeling especially grumpy. I'm just like, you know, as kind of like a side thing that 
I personally do just to kind of keep the podcast in context for myself um, and just kind of know what I personally like and don't like is a lot of tarot readers, readers out there try to sugarcoat everything. And, you know, I, I think that's not my personal flavor. Um, so again, get your, get your head out of your ass, Cancers. It's, uh, it's time to make a decision. Um, I agree with that. I think it's also, like, not particularly helpful. So No. Good for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, that's the bitter end. The bitter, the bitter end. The, the bitter end of a bitter potion. <laughs> it's as bitter as that motherwort tea that you, your herbalist may have told you to drink, but no one can drink something that bitter. No, no one can drink something that bitter. But what 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 can we uh what can we sweeten this with? You know, where where are the peach blossoms at? Mm, you can always send peach blossoms to us by mail as long as you reach out to us for that information, which you can do by uh, emailing us at wandsandfronspod at gmail.com or messaging us on Instagram, which is also at wandsandfronspod because we wanted to keep things simple for you guys. Yeah, nice and easy. And if you guys would be so kind. As to uh, download the episodes before you listen to them, or even afterwards, you know, maybe you could give it a give it a re-listen on a camping trip, uh, and you don't you don't have phone service out there. I don't care. We just want you to download them because it makes us look good, and it helps us take further steps to maybe make money off this one day. And if we're making money off this, we'll have more time to bring you better content. So yeah, right. I think that's that's always the goal. And y'all, we're like. We're so close to breaking a hell of a record for our podcast downloads. So, you know, get at it. Get after it. We need yeah. you guys' help. Yeah, you know, get on your mom's Spotify in her car and download a few episodes. Um, you know, just really go for it. Be annoying about it. Yeah, grab your Uber driver's phone and download it on their phone. You know, normal uh, things. Yeah, you know, put it on the <laughs> put it on the playlist at work. And, uh, and then just skip it. Uh, cause I do, I do want to beat that record. So, uh, I know anyway, well, until next time, what do we say to all of our, our potiony, our, our potion making bitches out there, Nicholas? Well, to all of you potion drunk bitches, I say blessed be bitches. <laughs> blessed be you potion drunk bitches. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye now. Snape the Potions Master, the episode, the movie, the Disney live experience on ice.